You're not clever or very smart, Rachel. People think you're really overbearing, Victoria. You are overweight, Rachel. You're a silly little girl, Victoria. You're not patient enough with your daughter, Rachel. Everyone thinks you're really annoying. You're not very good at your job. You've only got to where you are because you've been faking it. People only promote you because they like your personality, not because you're any good. Hello, I'm Rachel Webb, and I'm the host of the podcast She Leads Change, a space to explore ideas around affecting change, stepping into our power, leading from within, and all the challenges that we face along the way. First of all, let me introduce today's guest. I'm talking to Victoria Smith Murphy, a career and leadership coach who has a strong focus on intuition and self trust. And today we're going to be exploring internal and external narratives. So discussing the way that we talk to ourselves and how the way we're communicating affects the way we present to others. So hello, Victoria. Hello, it's lovely to be here. So what we were doing just then, giving our inner critics some airtime. So first of all, what I really noticed when I was writing my inner critic list was just how easily they all came out. I sat down and was able to blast through a list of 10 points that my inner critic is always saying to me. So what you will have noticed as we talked through that and what listeners might notice as they hear them back is the voice of our inner critic can be extremely powerful. It hits on our core insecurities. And the reason that is, is the inner critic's entire purpose is to keep us safe. It's a narrative that we have developed from a very young age that at one point or another kept us safe. And when I talk about safe, there are three sort of core drivers as children. So whatever environment we grew up in, each of us will have looked around and said, how do I need to behave in order to stay safe, accepted and loved in this environment? And the kind of the rules, the blueprints that we develop that keep us safe, accepted and loved turn into our inner critics narrative. So I, as a young child, at some point probably absorbed the story that in order to stay safe, accepted and loved, I had to make sure other people didn't think I thought I was better than them. So Mm -hmm. I internalised that as people think you're overbearing and annoying, stop taking up so much space. So our inner critic is very often just a kind of warped narrative of how do you stay safe? And when I say safe, I mean small. That's really interesting about... You know, your inner critic basically being there as a as a protection to yourself because 100%. speaking about how our inner critics have this core theme running through them, I can definitely mm-hmm. identify them that mine is you are not enough. So that's, you know, you're not smart enough, you're not thin enough, mm. you're not patient enough. And I can really see that just from running through the list that we mm. spoke about earlier. So that really feels like a learned behaviour. And it's interesting because I almost think you and I have quite opposing narratives. I think the core of my narrative is you are too much. So that it's quite interesting that both of us have like a theme, like a core narrative. And in some way, each of those narratives in a warped way is, is trying to keep us from taking risks. You won't be good enough at that. So don't try it. You're too much for that person. So don't try and build a relationship with them. So it's keeping us from taking up space. It's keeping us from growing. Our inner critic has zero interest in our personal growth, in our personal development, even in our happiness. 
The only thing it's bothered about is keeping you safe. A useful framework for understanding the inner critic narrative is a related concept called drivers. And this comes from a branch of psychology called transactional analysis. And the drivers are five core narratives, really, that psychologists have identified over time are common to many of us. Those five drivers are hurry up, please me, try hard, be perfect and be strong. And those five drivers, each of us will have a different strength of association with those drivers. But they are ultimately what we're talking about here, like a core narrative that you picked up at a young age and that kind of drives many of your behaviours and the way that you talk to yourself as you grow up, particularly as long as you remain unconscious of it. So when we're talking about behaviours that we pick up, we're talking about messages that are given to us sort of overtly and covertly as well through our parents, could be at school, could be the media. Most women listening to this podcast may be able to relate to two of those stages of the transactional analysis that you mentioned, which are be perfect and please others. Yes, this is obviously a generalisation, but those two, be perfect and please me or please others, are the most common for women. Be strong tends to be the most common for men. Mm. And, you know, I think when we're talking about please me and be perfect, we're talking about a very traditional sort of translation of that, which is for women, be seen and not heard, be dutiful and be obedient. Is that right? Yes, I would say those are probably most linked to the please me one, the kind of good girl persona, the obedient child. What I think is quite interesting about your inner critic narrative of you are not enough, that's very related to be perfect. You have to be perfect at every single thing that you do, otherwise it's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, straight A's aren't enough if you could have got an A star. Bristol University isn't enough, you should have got into Oxford. This house isn't enough if someone else has got one more bedroom than you I think you really just hit a very key word on the head there which is should yes we use it so much as a beating stick for ourselves I've really had to commit to try and turning down on the should over the last Mm. couple of years because anytime I think to myself oh I should do this or anytime I you know catch myself saying to somebody else I oh what you should do is this you know you just think about how aggressive that is And what I love there is it's also a really powerful clue. This entire podcast is about the power of language and communication. That word should is so revealing. Whenever you catch yourself saying, I should do this, that's almost always, not for everybody, because we all have slightly different linguistic styles. If you catch yourself using the word should internally or with somebody else, that is almost a red flag to yourself to say, oh, one second, Let me just pause here and check my motivation for making this decision. Does it come from my soul, my intuition, my inner mentor? Or is this my inner critic telling me that something should be different? I'm not doing enough. I need to hurry up. I need to do better. Well, yeah, I think, you know, just talking about our inner critics having a core theme and also talking about those five stages of transactional analysis will be really illuminating for a lot of people listening to this conversation it was only actually when you mentioned the idea of our inner critics having a core theme that I was actually able to link those dots together so I think Mm. the first step in as I say trying to turn down the volume on that inner critic is just noticing and noticing whose voice it is 
and where it's coming from as well. Exactly. If we can observe something, you can already create distance from it. I'm having a thought that I'm not a good enough mother to my daughter. The fact that I can even create some distance between me as a human being and that thought means that I can choose not to engage with it. And on the inner critic character, sometimes people will find that the voice of their inner critic is a familiar voice. It is the voice of someone in their life, often a parent or a carer or an early teacher or mentor. Often, however, it's kind of a character that isn't necessarily someone identifiable. So my inner critic, interestingly, is is a younger version of me. It's a really kind of precocious little girl, probably about seven or eight, who's scared of not being popular at school, basically. And a lot of people find it quite powerful to be able to put a character to their inner critic. And I just encourage people to remain open to whether that ends up being someone you recognise or, like for some people, it's a film character. Let's definitely talk about that because I think that will also be really helpful when it, when we come to talking about our inner mentor. Or 100%. Really useful anyway. So, you know, when we talk about our inner critics, that voice, and it's not just what we're saying, it's how we're saying it, how yes. quickly we can say it, what that voice sounds like, what that face looks like. It is all so close to the surface. Yeah. I think everybody can just conjure that up in, you know, seconds. But you know, when we come to talk about our inner mentor later, we're going to talk about how difficult it is mm. to try and visualise what our inner mentor looks like. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating how we grow up more comfortable with criticism than praise. And I think a lot of it is to do with the safety thing. It is safer to stay small than it is to flourish which is why it takes so much more work often. Personal development is often work for a reason, because you have to unlearn behaviours. Well, before we move on to talking about our inner mentor, I just wanted to shoehorn in this Glennon Doyle quote, Her Royal Highness I Glennon mean, Doyle. you can basically shoehorn Glennon Doyle in whenever you want, and Brene. <laughs> um, so this... You know, I just read this and I thought it really related to what you're talking about in the transactional analysis and being perfect. So Glennon Doyle says, when a woman finally learns that pleasing the world is impossible, she becomes free to learn how to please herself. Oh, I just got shivers. It's a good one, isn't it? Another um, Glennon Doyle one I love is when faced with the choice between abandoning yourself and abandoning anyone else, always choose anyone else. And related to the quote that you just shared, I think it might be helpful for people to recognise there's something called allowers with each driver. So for each transaction analysis driver, there is a, a like an antidote, essentially, which is called an allower. And it's almost like a mantra that you can start to connect with. So for the be perfect driver, the allower is you are already good enough. And for the please others, the allower is please yourself. Speaking about opposites, let's talk about getting familiar with our inner mentors Mm. so I found it really challenging to sit down and write out a list of things that my inner mentor could say to me because it felt so unfamiliar to do that Mm. so can we just talk a little bit about why that is I mean I, I think it's more difficult for some people than it is for others if you have a very strong inner critic narrative then the inner mentor is going to be more difficult to connect with however for pretty much everybody we're not 
really used to actively praising ourselves, particularly in British society. I'm married to an American and it's slightly different, to be honest, in, in American society. Like there is more of a culture of focus on your strengths, recognise what you're good at, shoot for the moon, because there isn't a class system. Anyone can be the president, as we've recently seen. And <laughs> we live in a society where there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a class system, there's aristocracy, so there's a ceiling. So most of us are not used to kind of focusing on what's really great about us how far can we go that just it's it's not as baked into the culture so that's, that's one thing I would say and that sounds a little bit convoluted the other thing I would say is when you are doing inner mental work and it is an incredibly powerful process to go through to change your relationship with yourself I would always advise starting with things like visualization stuff that isn't cognitive so when we're connecting with the inner mental, we want to connect with our intuition. We want to come out of the thinking mind and we want to drop down into our heart and into our body. And techniques that can be really great to do that are things like, like meditation, like visualizations in meditation or even drawing, movement even, anything that takes you out of the thinking mind. Because what you're trying to do here is connect with a different part of yourself, the part that is wise, kind, enlightened, and not scared. Our fear lives in our mind. So one of the reasons you may have found it difficult to sit down and just write a list of all the things your inner mentor might say is that's going to be really difficult if you're doing that with your mind. If you haven't gone through a process of kind of connecting with your inner mentor through meditation or through drawing or through some other technique and starting to get to know what the character of your inner mentor is, it's going to be difficult to know what he or she would say to you. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And it actually really makes me think of the quote I heard, which was just talking about how when we speak about finding ourselves, we don't need to find ourselves because no. we've never been lost. No, it's just, I love that. It's just an excavation. Yes, an excavation. That's a beautiful word. It's an excavation. It's a reconnection. Because you're, I mean, depending on your spiritual belief, your inner mentor is essentially your soul. Whether you have a belief in a, in a higher being or um, a belief in a, a sort of, you know, universal spirituality or whatever, your inner mentor is a part of yourself that you were born with before it got conditioned by society, before it inherited a load of beliefs about what I need to do to stay safe. Your inner mentor is your truest, most unconditioned self. So can you tell me about your inner mentor? What's she like? So I have done a few times and I would really recommend for people. There's a book called Playing Big by a woman called Tara Moore. And she has a inner mentor visualization meditation. I recreated it within my online course, Follow Your Intuition and Transform Your Decisions. And it's basically a guided visualization where you meet your inner mentor. It's really powerful. And my inner mentor is an older woman. She lives, this is really weird because I'm very much a city person. She lives in a big house on a coastal town somewhere like Greece, overlooking a cliff um, in this big house, big, spacious, lots of like dark wood floors. There's this like attic office, lots of glass everywhere. She's got long gray hair. She's beautiful. Beautiful as in like she looks really healthy. She wears a lot of white. She's always barefoot when I meet her. And she's just very at ease in her space. And she's just very peaceful. And actually, I would say the more time I spend in visualization connecting with that person, the more I notice myself embodying some of that. I'm much more peaceful than I was a couple of years ago. 
So what really stands out for me there is how polarised your inner critic and your inner mentors are. Mm. You know, you spoke about your inner critic being this sort of scared, worried, anxious girl and your inner mentor being this sort of older woman. And maybe there's something about your inner mentor needing to be that kind of objective look at your life. I think that's really astute to observe the balance life is all about balance balance of masculine and feminine energy balance of external and internal urban and rural before we move on from talking about Mm. our inner mentors so we talk about inner critic and inner mentor but I feel like it's really difficult to be in either one of those spaces all the time because you know they are so polarized so what do you think about this idea about a negotiator and I'm actually thinking specifically about an example that Mo Gaudat gave recently, where he spoke about how he calls his brain Becky, his inner critic. He's named it and he he called it Becky after a really annoying girl at school. And what that has done for him has allowed him to be able to negotiate with that voice when it comes up. So when that voice gets particularly loud, instead of just trying to squash it down all the time, he uses this technique where he kind of says, "Okay, Becky, what is it that you're trying to tell me? And then from that, he can have a conversation which sounds like, "Okay, I hear what you're saying, but actually I don't believe what you're telling me is true. Mm. What do you think about that? I would actually say that the negotiator and the inner mentor are probably the same thing. I would say they are different characterizations of your true self. We all have lots and lots of different aspects of our personality, lots of different aspects of our psyche. The inner critic is a strong one and there are others. When I'm talking about the inner mentor, when he's talking about the negotiator, what I hear is your connection to your your soul, your true self, your most aware and conscious being that can transcend fear and make choice from a place of feeling safe. Mm. You know, I I love the language he uses. It's compassion. We must talk to our inner critic with compassion, not with derision or resistance, because that's just going to make it pipe up even more. And he talks to his inner critic, he talks to her with, and and then he he explains that he's got this. I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe. I can do this. I've got the resources I need. And I would say that's, that's very similar to an inner mental. Yeah, no, I I like what you say there about compassion, because I think, you know, you have to hold a space for your inner critic. Otherwise, you just get into this cycle of thinking critically, and then you're angry with yourself for listening to the critical voice. And it's just this kind of echo chamber, isn't it, of negativity, Mm -hmm. rather than just looking at it objectively and saying, okay, I hear you. Let's talk about it. There's a phrase I love, I don't know where it came from, called what we resist persists. Mm. Um, if you just try and shut down something it's not going to go in it's like a negative emotion like if you're angry and you ignore the fact you're angry that anger is not just going to dissipate it's just going to lodge somewhere in your mind or body okay well maybe we can just move on to talking about imposter syndrome so the reason I wanted to talk about this is because as we heard from my inner critic this is often very loud for me at work you know I'm not good enough at my job um someone's going to find out that I'm not very good at it I've only got to where I have done because of sort of fluke and I wanted to talk about this because I feel like imposter syndrome has really become part of a lot of people's language over the past couple of years especially since Michelle Obama Mm. spoke about it in Becoming and I just want to talk about 
how it manifests. Yeah, I would actually invite us to frame imposter syndrome in the context of that be perfect driver, because there is a very, very strong overlap between the two. Most people in research studies and also in my personal experience, most people who experience imposter syndrome have a very strong be perfect narrative. They are used to being high achievers. And that's the irony of imposter syndrome. Someone who's rubbish very, very rarely has imposter syndrome. (laughs) It's people who are high achievers, who are used to being top of the class, used to getting straight A's and going up the career ladder. And the irony is it's the shadow side, back to the balance of life, yin and yang, the shadow side of being driven, being motivated, being a high achiever, is often that you have this be perfect driver that means you never think you're good enough. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. So should we talk about what we mean when we're talking about external narrative and the idea behind it. So, you know, we wanted to speak about the way that we present to other people and the language that we use and how sometimes when we use minimising language, that can skew the way that we're presenting externally Mm. and it's not aligning with what we might be trying to channel using our inner mentors. So I would be talking about Things like saying, you've probably already thought of this, but when you've had a chance, this is fairly obvious, but I think you had a couple as well, didn't you? Just is a big one. I just want to check. Mm. I'm just wondering if all of these that we're talking about here are examples of minimising language. There's also apologetic language. Apologies for taking up your time. I'm so sorry to email you out of the blue. I sent an email the other week where I started with apologies for leaving the call early yesterday. This call has gone on an hour and a half after it's allotted time. And Mm. I was apologising for leaving it early. And I actually deleted that line from the email because I wasn't sorry. There's these two aspects. There's the apologetic language and then there's a minimising language. And and the problem with both of these linguistic things that we do is is twofold. First of all, it minimises your impact. And secondly, and to be honest, the the worst one, it damages your trust in yourself. Because every time you say, you've probably already thought of this, apologies for leaving the call early, I just want to check, you're basically telling yourself you don't have a valid point or that you are taking up too much space. It's essentially your inner critic coming out in your external language. Mm, That's really interesting, isn't it? Mm. And I think something definitely that a lot of people will be able to identify with just is a really big one for me Mm. and when I think about use the way I use the word just especially in emails especially at work you're absolutely right it is about trying to make myself smaller because what it feels like for me when I take that just out is that I'm being aggressive or rude exactly and that's not safe because you're in a critics like if you say just then no one will think you're aggressive. No one will find you threatening. No one will reject you. You'll be able to stay safe. What I have actually started doing over the past couple of months now is just... Just? Is is doing a sense check on every single email that I sent. Because even though I have it in my head, I'm going to try and my heart is not to use minimizing or apologetic language it just comes out so naturally so I will write an email and then I'll go back over it and just delete every just every apologies but you know every this is every, every you've probably obvious. thought of this already yeah and I think that's a brilliant exercise to do because what you're doing when you do that is you are training your brain 
you're making a conscious decision and therefore you're creating a new neural pathway that says Rachel doesn't use minimizing language and you just you have to keep doing it again and again and again and again and again so that it becomes a default behavior it reminds me actually of again another podcast I was listening to with uh, Jamila Jamil where she was talking about the art of practicing the micro no and it sort of sounds similar to what you're saying there you know you're learning a new behavior and you're learning it through repetition and she talks a lot about how she was a real people pleaser and eventually you know she just became so burnt out and she had no personal boundaries because she was just bending over backwards so much for everyone else and the simple act of putting in a micro no into something really small like telling someone that that wasn't the right coffee that she ordered and she Mm. wanted something different which seemed like a really big step Mm. at first then if you practice and practice and practice doing that in a really small way that will then eventually snowball into really important decisions and into no I don't want to marry you yeah (laughs) it's a bit I like we're joking but that is like people get married because they can't say no like how crazy is that so I think the Jamila Jamil story is, is a brilliant example of when you identify a behavior in your life that is not serving you, not that isn't good because good, but there's no such thing as good or bad. It's dependent on what you want to achieve in your life. If you are identifying something that isn't serving you, I'm people pleasing and it burns me out, for example, then you've identified where you can make a different choice and you just start small, really small until it gets comfortable and then you move up a notch yeah for sure and just going back to my imposter syndrome once again talking about me doing me sense checking my emails and taking out all the justs it's this kind of exercise in wanting to be perceived as you know a leader and having confidence which is in itself this kind of salve on my imposter syndrome so when we're talking about stripping out this kind of language are we talking about getting close to channeling our inner mentors is that you know is that where we're going with that I think anytime we make a conscious decision and choose something that takes us closer to the person we want to be in the world we are channeling our inner mentor anytime so when you remove all of the justs from your email you're not simply telling other people I'm a leader and I have great ideas you're telling yourself Rachel, you're a leader and you have great ideas. And that's more important, whether it's an email or staying patient with your screaming toddler. Channeling your inner mentor, back to what you said earlier, it's not something external to you. It's excavating, it's reconnecting. It's a series of small choices. On that note then, shall we swap our inner mentors? Yes. Rachel, you have a big heart. Victoria, you succeed at what you do. Rachel, you try really hard. Victoria, you try your best and you have good intentions. Rachel, you're considerate of how your actions will affect other people. Victoria, you are loved. Rachel, you admit when you're wrong. Victoria, everything's fine. So we're going to have a quick fire round and I'm going to ask you to talk about some things that have inspired you recently. So first of all, what have you read lately that you would like to rave about? The book that's really inspired me recently is a children's book that I bought my son called The Girl and the Dinosaur. 
And it's just magical. There's this concept I love of um, creating a temple in your heart and keeping your secrets there. And it reminded me of the power of being your own secret keeper. Okay, what have you watched lately that you'd like to rave about? Pretend It's a City on Netflix. It's a series with Martin Scorsese and Fran Leibowitz. And it's just fucking hilarious. It's based in New York and she is this I don't know if you know Fran Lebowitz, but she's a, an author and she's just like, she doesn't give a shit what anyone thinks of her. For someone who's lived in New York and had, like, my heart is in New York, I just love it. And what have you listened to lately that has inspired you? So Playing Big, the book I mentioned earlier by Tara Moore, I listen to it at least twice a year. And then I'm a podcast obsessive and I'm totally into Louis Theroux at the moment and Grounded, mm-hmm. his podcast series. And I listened to his one with Sia yesterday and it made me cry. Have you listened to the one with FKA Twigs? I would recommend everyone listens to that episode because it is an incredibly powerful episode. Okay. What have you tried recently? So two things. First of all, I've been getting back into cycling and it is pure joy. Uh, Brene Brown has a concept of play, which is the doing of something for the joy of doing it and no other purpose. And that's how I feel about cycling. I just love Mm -hmm. cycling around and I'm trying to learn to draw. It's really interesting that you mentioned about play because I was talking to my husband about this last night and the importance of exactly that, having something in your life that you do that doesn't have a goal um, or somewhere that you're trying to get to because we were talking about our hobbies being going for a run or doing yoga, but ultimately you're still trying to get somewhere or you're trying to achieve some kind of self-improvement. Yes, yes. Everyone should have something in their life that they do for the sheer joy of doing it and not for any goal. Yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway. And it feels really difficult to make that time sometimes because you're working and then having time for play comes it's just so far down on the pile, isn't it? it? So you might have time for it every now and again. And it's always just with your leftover time. I would also say, though, that play doesn't need to be like something new it doesn't need to be like drawing or something it might literally just be like lying down in a dark room or having a bath or watching a sex in the city rerun it's just anything you want to do because you want to do it Mm. as opposed to because it has like an outcome okay last one what have you eaten recently that you want to talk about well, I mean, literally, this could go on for another hour. Um, <laughs> so we've been trying out loads of like delivery, um, like really interesting deliveries, obviously, during lockdown. And um, we've just ordered from this amazing restaurant in London called Kalamba. It's a Sri Lankan restaurant and we love it. So that's our Valentine's meal tonight. And I am so excited. <laughs> Um, well, Victoria, thank you so oh, much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Um, but before we go, can you yeah. give me a bit of an introduction into what you cover in your work as a life coach and sure. who you work with? Absolutely. So I, um, so I'm a career and leadership coach, and I work predominantly with leaders in um, medium and large size organisations to help them make bolder decisions and inspire others, essentially, all through a deeper connection with their own intuition. So I do a lot of work one-to-one with leaders. Um, I then uh, run uh, workshops and programs within organisations on topics such as intuition, self-leadership, managing your energy levels and your resilience. Um, So really kind of soulful, um, interactive workshops. Um, And then I have a couple of online programs on career management and an introduction to the essentials of intuition called Follow Your Intuition and Trust Your Decisions, which is a really lovely place to start if you are looking to 
to connect better with your intuition. That sounds brilliant. And I will definitely link to your website in the show notes so people can check you out. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I found this conversation with Victoria really thought-provoking and energising, and I hope you have too. As always, you can head over to sheleadschange.org for more information on the different programmes that are coming up. And please do leave a review or rating if you've enjoyed the podcast today. You can get in touch with me at sheleadschangepodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to say hello. Otherwise, I'll see you in next month's episode when I'll be discussing diversity with some very special guests. See you then.